Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. I'm Dr. Kate Merriweather, editor for the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls series, and you can tweet at me at Kate Merriweather one Today, we'll be talking about a 23-year-old woman with hyperemesis gravidarum, and we'll be discussing not only the differential diagnosis of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, but the management of this common and troublesome disorder, and how you can avoid negative consequences for it in pregnancy. Let's get started. Today, we'll be learning about a 23-year-old woman with hyperemesis gravidarum. This is case two on page eight of the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls book. For those of you who are following along in the paper copy, this case was written by Dr. Shannon Clark, who is an associate physician in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at UC Davis Children's Hospital, Sacramento, California. Let's meet our patient. She's a 23-year-old G1P0 who presents to the emergency department at nine weeks gestation by last menstrual period with a one-week history of nausea and vomiting. She's not yet established prenatal care as she is so early in her pregnancy. A pelvic sonogram reveals an intrauterine pregnancy at eight weeks and two days gestation. She reports the inability to keep solids down but is able to tolerate some liquids. She has approximately four episodes of emesis daily and intermittent nausea throughout the day. She also reports a 2.3 kilogram or 5 pound weight loss. She does not report fever, chills, diarrhea, or sick contacts. So what questions should be asked when interviewing this patient? When a pregnant female presents with nausea and vomiting early in pregnancy, it's important to ask questions about the onset, timing, and severity of symptoms, as well as any aggravating or alleviating factors. In addition, inquire about any sick contacts. Next, ask whether she has any coexisting medical problems that would cause nausea and vomiting pregnancy, such as gastroesophageal reflux disease, diabetes, other gastrointestinal conditions, or prior abdominal surgeries. Finally, it's necessary to ask the patient how many episodes of nausea, vomiting, and dry heaving she is having per day, whether she is tolerating any solid foods or liquids, or if she is urinating normal volumes. A little clinical pearl. A thorough physical examination is necessary. There are conditions that can be life-threatening, like a ruptured ectopic pregnancy or a ruptured appendix in a woman who's pregnant. It's particularly important to assess the duration of nausea and vomiting and ability to tolerate liquids in order to determine the risk for more severe medical condition, Wernicke's encephalopathy. That's due to prolonged nausea and vomiting and subsequent vitamin B1 or thiamine deficiency. Memory loss, apathy, decreased level of consciousness, or blurred vision are additional symptoms associated with thiamine deficiency. Deficiencies in vitamins B6 and B12 may also occur and are associated with anemia and peripheral neuropathy. Finally, vitamin K deficiency and coagulopathy can cause bleeding. So a little bit about Wernicke's encephalopathy. In that case, bilateral small mammillary bodies are very suggestive of remote damage in the brain. And you can determine this on MRI 
or with gross autopsy in the woman who's passed away. A little basic science pearl. A rare complication of hyperemesis gravidarum is Wernicke's, the severe thiamine deficiency caused by poor dietary intake, emesis, and increased metabolic demands of pregnancy. Frequency is between 0.1% and 0.5% of pregnancies, with clinical features including the triad of ocular abnormalities, confusion, and ataxia. So what physical exam findings might we find on this patient? When examining the patient, the abdominal and pelvic exams are particularly important. Superpubic pain could indicate cystitis or urinary tract infection, and right lower quadrant pain on exam could indicate acute appendicitis the most common general surgical emergency in pregnancy. The pelvic exam should include a sterile speculum exam and a bimanual exam. The cervix should be assessed for any bleeding or signs of infection, and the bimanual exam will not only reveal an enlarged gravid uterus, but whether there are any signs of infection, such as seen in pelvic inflammatory disease, or adnexal fullus, which should indicate an ectopic pregnancy or an adnexal mass that exists with a normal intrauterine pregnancy. Finally, the patient should be assessed for signs of dehydration, such as dry mucous membranes, decreased skin, turgor, etc. So let's go to our patient and do this physical exam. On physical exam, the patient has a temperature of 36.6 Celsius, a heart rate of 80 per minute, a blood pressure of 110 over 80 millimeters mercury, so normal vital signs. Her neck is normal to palpation without masses, tenderness, or lymphadenopathy. Her abdomen is soft, non-tender to palpation, and without rebound or guarding. She does not have suprapubic or costovertebral angle tenderness. On pelvic exam, the patient has normal external female genitalia without lesions or pain. There's no vaginal discharge, bleeding, or malodor. So what's your differential diagnosis at this point? When a pregnant patient presents with nausea vomiting, it should not be assumed that it's due to the pregnancy alone. One should always look for atypical symptoms on physical exam findings that may indicate another cause, especially if the patient initially presents with nausea and vomiting after 10 weeks of gestation. Now, this woman is rather early. We think she's eight weeks and two days by ultrasound, nine weeks by her last menstrual period. So our suspicion is not as high, particularly after doing this benign exam. But clinical pearl, it should never be assumed that nausea vomiting in the first trimester is just due to the pregnancy. They can have other conditions, and these should not be overlooked, particularly things like appendicitis, hepatitis, central nervous system abnormalities, pancreatitis, helicobacter pylori, hepatitis, cholecystitis, acute fatty liver of pregnancy, hyperthyroidism, that's why we did a neck exam in this patient, and peptic ulcer disease. There are some conditions that need to be ruled out, of course. If the patient has a fever, a source of infection should be sought, like urinary tract infection or gastroenteritis. If there's peritoneal signs, suspicion for an acute abdomen is raised, like acute appendicitis or a ruptured ectopic pregnancy or a bleeding anomaly. Headache associated with nausea and vomiting can occur with dehydration, but preeclampsia should be considered, especially if there's elevated blood pressure and the patient is after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Although epigastric pain and hematemesis are rare in pregnancy, a Mallory Weiss tear from a prolonged vomiting episode may occur. Finally, heartburn and gastric reflex occur in the significant number of pregnant women. As a result, determining whether the patient has GERD is very important. So what is our working diagnosis in this patient? If the patient presents at less than 10 weeks gestation like this one, the leading diagnosis is nausea and vomiting of pregnancy, or NVP, which occurs in 50 to 90% of pregnancy. NVP has a traditionally referred to as morning sickness, but nausea can occur at any time of the day or night and occur with or without episodes of vomiting. 
NVP typically starts between four and nine weeks gestation with maximal symptoms at 12 to 15 weeks and resolution of symptoms by 20 weeks gestational age. Symptoms of NVP include any combination of the following, nausea, gagging, retching, dry heaving, vomiting, and odor and or food aversion. So women can have odd aversions to things that they formerly loved, such as certain kinds of vegetables or coffee or tea. A little clinical pearl. If the diagnosis of NBP or hyperemesis gravidarum is made, but there's poor response to treatment and atypical presentation or initial presentation after 10 weeks, another etiology really should be sought. Another clinical pearl. Up to 20% of women experience symptoms well into the second trimester of NBP and possibly throughout the entire pregnancy. So what laboratory evaluation and radiologic testing should be performed, if any, on this patient? So determining the gestational age of the pregnancy and the number of fetuses present, especially in a patient that had no prior prenatal care like this one, is really essential. This is achieved through a pelvic sonogram. Assessment of dehydration status can be easily done with a urine dipstick to check for urine ketones. If the patient shows signs of dehydration and has moderate to severe ketones on urine dipstick, obtaining a blood urea nitrogen, a BUN, creatinine, aspartate aminotransferase and alanine aminotransferase, or AST-ALT, and electrolytes should be considered. If there's any concerns for pancreatitis, add an amylase and a lipase to that. So the urine's dipstick for this patient comes back positive for ketones, and her lab evaluation is significant only for hypokalemia with a potassium level of 3 MEQ per liter. So it's known that human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, cross-reacts with thyrotropin, or a thyroid-stimulating hormone, THH, and it stimulates the thyroid gland. That makes TSH lower in pregnancy to measurement, especially in the first trimester. TSH in free T4 should be checked if there is a history of thyroid disease or the patient is exhibiting other signs and clinical symptoms of thyroid disease. So a little clinical pearl. Part of the thorough physical exam includes the thyroid exam. Remember, we examine the patient's neck to assess for fullness or nodules, especially if the patient has a history of thyroid disease or thyroid masses. Symptoms of thyroid disease can mimic the symptoms of pregnancy, which can make diagnosing thyroid disease in pregnancy more challenging. So what's the etiology of NVP, assuming that there's not other underlying conditions in this patient? The hormonal changes that occur during pregnancy are known to contribute to the symptoms of NBP. Estrogen, HCG, progesterone, and thyroid hormone levels change throughout pregnancy, especially in the first trimester, and that triggers nausea and vomiting. Conditions like multiple gestation and molar pregnancy that are associated with increased placental mass and therefore increased levels of HCG are associated with more severe symptoms. Remember, we wanted to assess how many fetuses this person had, for example. However, It is the structural similarity in the biomolecular structure of HCG and TSH that plays a particular significant role in NVP. Increased HCG in pregnancy cross-reacts with TSH, thus stimulating the thyroid gland, particularly in the first trimester. Patients with NVP and its more severe form, HG or hyperemesis gravidarum, may have abnormal thyroid function tests or TFTs. Subclinical hyperthyroidism is commonly seen. That's a low TSH and normal to high normal thyroid levels with NVP or HG. However, thyroid function tests should not be assessed as part of routine assessment for NVP unless the patient has a history of thyroid disease, is showing signs of symptoms or thyroid disease, or has an abnormal thyroid exam. Finally, treatment for subclinical hyperthyroidism is typically not necessary as the thyroid function tests will normalize as symptoms resolve and the pregnancy progresses. 
Little Clinical Pearl, women with a history of severe NVP or HD requiring hospitalization or medical therapy may be hesitant to become pregnant again. It is reasonable to offer these women early or prophylactic treatment in the next pregnancy that they achieve. So an additional contribute to NVP involves the physiologic changes in pregnancy involving the gastrointestinal tract. The GI tract is anatomically affected by the growing uterus and displacement of the abdominal organs, and its transit time is slowed by the hormonal changes of pregnancy, particularly estrogen and progesterone, which slow GI function. Furthermore, the GE junction, the gastroesophageal junction, is altered, leading to reflux and nausea or vomiting. So what are some risk factors for NBP beyond just pregnancy itself? Genetics does play a role in the development and severity of these. Not only are NVP and HG likely heritable diseases, but the severity of symptoms may also be associated with a genetic predisposition. Women are at the greatest risk for developing NVP if their mother or sister had NVP or HG, or if the patient herself had NVP or HG in a prior pregnancy. Other risk factors include multiple gestation, molar pregnancy, young nulliparous obese women. Factors associated with more severe symptoms of NBP include stress, lack of sleep, chronic helicobacter pylori infection, peptic or duodenal ulcers, migraines, and prenatal vitamins. Remember, prenatal vitamins, even normally taken, will increase nausea in pregnancy and even vomiting. Little clinical pearl, because NVP is predominantly a condition in the first trimester, concerns of fetal exposure to medications arise. Trying conservative measures first for the treatment of NBP is recommended, but medical therapy should not be withheld if indicated. Progression of symptoms can lead to more severe form of NBP, hyperemesis gravidarum. So how do we treat NVP? Up to 10% of pregnant women will require some medical treatment of NBP after failure of conservative measures. So some conservative measures to back that up is to avoid aversive odors or foods, eat multiple small meals a day with higher protein and carbohydrate and lower fat content, Try the RAT diet, which is bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast, getting adequate rest, drinking smaller volumes of liquid multiple times a day, and up to two liters of fluid per day in total, and avoiding physiological or psychological stress. So if those fail, a combination of oral pyroxidine hydrochloride, vitamin B6, and doxalamine succinate, histamine 1, H1 receptor antagonists, are recommended as first-line treatment if pyroxidine monotherapy doesn't really relieve symptoms. So these medications are available individually, over-the-counter, or as a sustained-release formulation of 10 mg of pyridoxine and 10 mg doxalamine combined together. Clinical Pearl in women with HG, the values of TSH and free T4 may be similar to that seen in Graves' disease, but without the clinical signs and symptoms of Graves' disease or the presence of thyroid antibodies. If you're initiating treatment with pyridoxine and doxylamine, breakthrough nausea and vomiting can be treated with a variety of medications. Examples include diamond hydronate, an H1 receptor antagonist, promethazine, a dopamine or D2 receptor antagonist, or metoclopramide, dopamine receptor antagonist. These agents can also be used as second-line therapy if the pyridoxine-doxylamine combination fails to be adequately controlling the symptoms. Third-line therapy includes serotonin-5-hydroxytryptamine-3 receptors, or 5-HT3 antagonists, or odansetron. Here's a basic science pearl. 
Doxylamine inhibits the action of the histamine at the H1 receptor and acts at the vestibular system and exhibits some inhibition of muscarinic receptors in the vomiting center. Promethazine belongs to a class of dopamine D2 receptor antagonists that inhibit gastric motility through the D2 receptors of the GI tract. D2 receptor antagonists decrease stimulation of the chemoreceptor trigger zone. Metacolpramide is a dopamine receptor antagonist that is an antiminic and a prokinetic. It decreases gastrointestinal emptying time and decreases stimulation of the chemoreceptor trigger zone at the same time. Odansetron works at the 5-HT3 receptors located in the small bowel, the vagus nerve, and the chemoreceptor trigger zone. So let's go back to our patient now that we have some idea of what can be helpful to her. The patient is given one liter intravenous hydration, potassium replacement, and intravenous odansetron. As her nausea begins to improve, vitamin B6 and doxylamine are initiated. She feels much improved after 48 hours of hospitalization, an improvement in her labs and clinical status, and then is discharged to home. So what will we do in the more severe form of NVP? Hyperemesis gravidarum, or HG, occurs in up to 3% of pregnancies and is characterized by severe persistent nausea and vomiting, a loss of 5% or more of pre-pregnancy body weight, electrolyte abnormalities, ketonuria, dehydration, and potential vitamin or mineral deficiencies. Patients with hyperemesis gravidarum might present frequently to the emergency room or labor and delivery for intravenous fluid hydration and anaemetics, and they require inpatient admission when symptoms are severe and or prolonged. Inpatient admission is usually reserved when the patient is catotic or dehydrated in order to properly treat and investigate other potential causes for the nausea and vomiting. Failure to diagnose and or properly treat NVP can lead to the development of HG. As a result, asking your patient about the symptoms of NVP early in pregnancy and treating when necessary can lead to a more manageable course for the patient and actually prevent the progression to HG. So let's go beyond the pearls for this patient. Alternative therapies, including acupuncture and ginger, have been studied for nausea and vomit in pregnancy with inconsistent results. Enteral tube feedings may be effective. However, some patients continue to have persistent emesis even with these. Total parenteral nutrition, or TPN, is reserved for patients with significant weight loss, so more than 5% of body weight, without response to anaemetic regimens, and cannot be managed with enteral feedings. TPN is associated with a risk of line sepsis and steatohepatitis, so it has to be reserved for only when needed. Let's do some case summary for this patient. We've met a 23-year-old G1P0 woman who presented to the emergency department at nine weeks of gestational age with nausea and vomiting. History and physical examination revealed hemodynamic stability, absence of fever, and a non-surgical abdomen, indicating no underlying acute events. Laboratory evaluation was significant for ketonuria and hypokalemia. The patient received IV fluids, electrolyte replacement, and antiemetics. She began dietary adjustments. Her ketonuria and hypokalemia resolved, and she was able to tolerate intake by mouth. She was discharged home with antiemetics and prenatal vitamins and scheduled for follow-up with a clinical appointment to establish prenatal care. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.